let's go ahead and stand together as we sing this next song. We're excited to see everyone here this morning. We're here to worship the Lord, to remember what he has done for us. And this next song just reminds us that God is reigning and God is in control. Father, we just pray that you would help us to set our hearts on things above, that you would help us to focus our minds on you. We thank you that you promised to be here wherever two or three are gathered in your name. Uh, you will be there in our midst, and you are in our midst today, God. Uh, we just pray for your spirit to move among us, to encourage us and build us up uh, and comfort us, God, whatever may be going on in our lives. We commit our time to you. In Jesus' name we pray. You paint the night. You count the stars and you call them by name. Your skies proclaim, God, you reign. Your glory shines. Psalm 62, first two verses say, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Just this idea that God is our rock, whatever is happening in our life. This next song is thinking about that theme and, and just helping us to remind ourselves that no matter what else is going on, um, that we can count on one thing, that God never fails us. I would like you to pray with me. Let's pray. Father, uh, we are blessed to, to be in your presence today. We thank you for your goodness to us. And I ask that you would uh, take your spirits, spirit and work in our hearts. Open our eyes uh, that we might behold wonderful truths from your law. The things that you have in store for us today. I pray that you'd speak to each of our hearts specifically as you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, that was a new song, right? The last one we just sang? Okay, I was trying to get up to speed on that one, so um, just a little musically challenged, so I was trying to get up to speed. So thank you for a new song. I just need to hear, hear it more so I get up to speed on it. Um, the other day, our, our grandson was over, and uh, he likes to explore in what is our storage area of our basement because there's all kinds of stuff in there. And so he's like, Grandpa, Papa, let's go explore. So we went in there, and we're exploring. And we, uh, I, I dug out a trunk, and I opened this trunk. And inside the trunk, I found a doll that was, is one of my wife's favorite dolls that she thought, up to this point, was lost. Didn't know where it was. It's a, it's a lost. But, the, but the, the lost was found after five years in Urbandale and her not knowing where, where this doll was, it, it's found. She actually went out and bought a, a, a look-alike uh, because she was thinking that it was, it was gone forever. And so we found the lost doll. As we come to 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 1 through 27, we're in the throes of, of lost and found. Kish's donkeys were lost 
And so he sent his son Saul to go find him and his servant to, to find these, these lost donkeys. And pretty soon, as I read the text in 1 Samuel chapter 10, we're going to find out that he's told that his lost donkeys are found. Okay? And the search for the lost donkeys was providential in bringing Saul to Samuel so that Samuel could give him a word of, from God, which is where we left off in chapter 9. Verse 27. But later on in chapter 10, we're going to find out that the, the, the anointed and announced king is lost. And it's God's revelation of his location that leads to his coronation as the lost is found. And so, as we go through this consecration and coronation of Saul and this lost and found we come to realize there's some important lessons that God has for us regarding our lives our ministry and our place in God's plan and so if you have your Bibles I would invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 10 if you don't have one there should be one under the seat in front of you or you can have your device or whatever I'm reading from the New American Standard version so it's going to be different than than some of your versions I'll try to explain on certain points where this is important okay so I'm in 1 Samuel chapter 10 I'm going to read through I think just the first 16 verses and then we'll try to unpack it and here's just a word for you what I'd encourage you to do maybe uh, in the week as you prepare for worship, read the next chapter, okay? So just read the next chapter, and then you'll maybe be a little better up to speed than when we come on Sunday mornings. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it on, the, on his head. Now, this is on Saul's head, okay? So we have to look back at chapter 9, verse 27. As they were going down to the edge of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Say to the servant that he may go ahead of you, of us, and pass on. But you remain standing now, that I may proclaim to you the word, the word of God to you. So now it's just Saul and Samuel. And verse 1, Samuel took a, the flask of oil and poured it on the head, his head, kissed him, and said, Has not the Lord anointed you a ruler over his inheritance? And when you go for me today, then you will find two men close to Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin and Zelzah and they will say to you the donkeys which you went to look for have been found now behold your father has ceased to be concerned about the donkeys and is anxious for you saying what shall I do about my son which interestingly enough isn't that exactly what Saul thought his dad would be wondering at this point then verse 3 you will go further and there and you will come as far as the oak of Tabor and there are three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you one carrying three kids another carrying three loaves of bread and another carrying a jug of wine and they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread which you will accept from their hand and afterward you will come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is and it shall be as soon as you have come there up come there to the city you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp tambourine flute and lyre before them and they will be prophesying and then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily and you will prophesy with them and be changed into another man. And it shall be when, you, when these signs come to you, do for yourself what the occasion requires for God is with you. 
And you will go down from before, before to, me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. Then it happened when he turned his back, that is Saul turned his back to leave Samuel, God changed his heart. And all those signs came about on that day. When they came to the hill, now that is all those except what he said in chapter, or verse 8, because that's going to come later, okay? So all of them except the one in verse 8 is coming. And when they came to the hill, there behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came upon him mightily, so that he prophesied among them. And it came about when all who knew him previously saw that he prophesied, now with the prophets, that the people said to one another, what's happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And the man there answered and said, Now who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Now Saul's uncle said to him and his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To look for the donkeys. When we saw that we could not, they could not be found, Lost donkeys, couldn't be found. We went to Samuel. And Sam, Saul's uncle said, Oh, please tell me what Samuel said to you. So Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But he did not tell him about the matter of the kingdom which Samuel had mentioned. Now, basically, this chapter breaks down into two main sections. The first section has to do with the, the private anointing of Saul. And the second section, which I didn't read, verses 17 through the end of the chapter, has to do with the announcement of Saul. Okay, So one has to do with his consecration. The other one has to do with his coronation. And in these two sections, we're going to tease out, I think, what are some lessons for us to be learned. And first of all, lessons we learn... That, that come to us, the two steps, okay, that, that Saul took in, in uh, God took in Saul's life, teach us valuable lessons about our own place in ministry and God's work for all of mankind, all right? The first one is this, lessons we learn from Saul's private consecration. So there are three lessons I just want to uh, mention. First of all, God anoints his servants, all right? In verse 1, the word of God... Samuel conveyed to Saul is that you're the king, you're the prince. But he preceded that declaration with some action. And the action was that he anointed him. He anointed him privately with oil to confirm it. Okay, So this, this anointing with oil was that which confirmed that what he was proclaiming was to be true. Um, I didn't really, I haven't been watching it, but down in Kansas City, they're having the NFL draft this weekend, okay? And so when a team selects a player, they, they say, this is, player is going to go to this team, you know? Well, here, God is saying through Samuel, Saul, you're on my team, and here's your position. You're going to be the prince. You're the prince of Israel. And so this was his anointing of his servants. Then, secondly, God assures his servants in verses and this is 2 through 13. Samuel announced to Saul, there's going to be a series of, of signs that are going to take place. And you're, these, this is what's going to happen to you. And 
as I tell you what's going to happen, a series of signs affirm not only the reliability of Samuel's word, but also the fact that this is the place that Saul is going to have confirmed Saul's identity is changing. He's, he's no longer just this farm boy uh, from Benjamin. He is going to be the king. And there's two categories of signs. There's specific circumstances. And what's interesting to me is as you walk down through it, Saul is told specifically, very specifically, what's going to happen. So that you can't fudge on it. You can't somehow think, well, it was close to being true. So it confirms to him that he is hearing the word of God. And that he is placed as God's king. Okay, Saul is told that that very day, okay, he'll meet two men. And uh, these two men will verify Samuel's earlier statement that the donkeys have been found because Samuel told Saul back in chapter 9, uh, don't worry about it, the donkeys, donkeys are found. You know, don't, don't, don't have to sweat it because we know, well, now they're gonna, he's going to meet two men and they're going to say, yes, this is true, okay? And later, he's going to meet three men and these men are going to greet him. It's kind of, okay, they're going to greet you. You're not going to greet them, they're going to greet you and then they're going to give you some stuff. Okay, they're going to give you, they're going to be carrying some stuff, and then they're going to give you some stuff. They're going to give you two loaves of bread. Now, if I were to tell you, you're going to walk out the door here, and you're going to meet a guy walking on the sidewalk, and he's going to come up to you, and he's going to greet you, and he's going to give you a chicken. And you walk out the door on your way to the, your car, and you, some guy comes up to you, and he says, Hi, my name is so-and-so. What's your name? Hey, here's a chicken. You're going to go, whoa, what is, either, either what is the pastor smoking or what, God must really be speaking through him, you know. This is it. I'm going to, you're, you're, you're being told what's going to happen. And not only are there special circumstances, specific circumstances, but there are spirits, there's a spiritual change that he, he professed would happen beginning in chapter 5. He said he'd meet some prophets. In chapter 5, after that, you'll, you'll come down, you're going to meet some prophets. And the Spirit of God is going to come mightily upon you. Now that is mentioned twice in this passage. The Spirit of God is going to come mightily upon you. Equipping and empowering Him for service. Like, okay, this is a special anointing of the Spirit of God to do what God has called Him to. And He's going to prophesy. He'd prophesy. And this would evidence the fact that the Spirit of God had come upon Him powerfully. Okay. And he'd be changed into, the text says, another man. He's going to be changed into another man. All right? Saul would experience a spiritual transformation. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that this was a conversion. I'm not necessarily saying he became a believer. But there was a spiritual transformation. Something happened in Saul's life. Okay? That was wrought by the Spirit of God. Interestingly enough, in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God came temporarily upon people. Only in the New Testament, after the ascension of Christ, does the Spirit of God come permanently upon believers. And here, so He came temporarily, and He empowers, whether it's in the Old Testament temporarily, or in the New Testament permanently, He empowers people and equips them to serve himself now uh, you can look at uh, 
John chapter 14, you can just write this down. In John chapter 14, he talks about, Jesus says, I'm going to send a comforter, another comforter, and he'll come to you. In Acts chapter 1-8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Power when the Spirit comes, and then you'll be my witnesses. In the passage I want us to look at is in Colossians uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 29. Uh, For this purpose I also labor, striving according to his power that works mightily within me okay it's the power of the spirit of god that works mightily within him when when these predicted signs uh come upon saul then the text says uh, do whatever you want verse seven it's kind of and it shall be when these signs come to you do for yourself whatever the occasion requires why because god is with you you have the presence and the power of god to do what seems fitting in the occasion. Now, uh, on first blush, it's like there could be no greater assurance given to anybody than that God's with you. I mean, the Apostle Paul says this to every believer. It's true. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. He said this, It is God, if God is for us, who can be against us? Wow. If God is with you, then that's that's the greatest assurance, the greatest encouragement we could ever have. There's nothing. What did Paul say in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So if God is with me, if Christ is in me, there's no greater encouragement that I can have. But it can also be like intoxicating power. Or at least we could think, whoa, what a, do whatever you want. Whatever you say, oh, really? If God's with me, I can do whatever I want? I'm not saying that. That's what Saul was told by Samuel. But there's a qualifier. It's not a blank check. It's not do whatever you want, whatever you want. It's that you have God with you, so whatever you do cannot be inconsistent with what God wants. And we see, if we looked at it, the, the, that we have, what was he told? He was anointed as the prince, right? You'll be anointed as a prince. This is what it says in verse 1. Has not the Lord anointed you as a prince? Which is a reminder that Saul is nothing more than a vassal king. He is an under-shepherd king. That there is one true king, and that is God himself. And so here we see the same thing playing out. If we look at, 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 at verse 8, it says, that what I would say, the summary of verse 7 is, that since he's a vice regent, like an under king, all right, what he does is dictated by God. He cannot do anything that God does not want him to do. He cannot do that which is inconsistent with God's word. And we see in verse 8 that he's told, you're supposed to go down and and wait for me. Seven days you're supposed to wait for me at Gilgal. And then I'll show you what to do. We're going to find out when we get to chapter 13 that Saul did not do exactly what God said. And so I think the tension here is, you do what you want, but it has to be dictated by God's word. We cannot do that which is inconsistent with God's word. And Saul, it got him into trouble. I like the way Ralph Davis summarizes this. He says, what right have we to, do, to think we can enjoy the Lord's power and the Lord's presence 
when we deny his lordship by trampling on his word. So I think a lesson for us is we can do as God's people with his, God's presence and power whatever is consistent with God's word. And so we need to be careful that we're not acting contrary to that. So too many churches and too many believers, I think, are either forget or they ignore that the Spirit's work will never conflict with, it will never contradict, and it will never co-opt God's work. So I have to interpret what I do in light of what God's Word says. I can't just say, well, you know, the Spirit of God led me to do this. Well, really? Well, is this consistent with God's Word? Is it co-opt God's Word? Is it contrary to God's Word? Then if it is, God didn't lead you to do this. Uh, you, you were, you know, making this up on your own. And the same is true for Saul. The same is true for us if we profess Christ. We can't just do whatever we want. Whatever we do in the Spirit's power with God's presence and power has to be consistent with His Word. Then verse 9, then it happened. (laughs) Whatever Saul was told by Samuel, then it happened. Well, that's pretty good confirmation. That's pretty good assurance. That's pretty good uh, encouragement that, that God is in it. The specific fulfillment of the uncanny events on that day I mean, you think about it. All that he was told was going to happen. Uh, two dudes, you're going to meet them. Okay, they're going to tell you the donkeys are found. And then three dudes. One guy's carrying some, uh, some stuff. Uh, you know, they're carrying some bread, some wine, and some goats. Uh, they're going to give you some bread. They're going to greet you. Then you're going to say, that's cool. Then you're going to go a little further. You're going to meet some prophets. And hey, these guys are tambourines and flutes and lyres and all kinds of stuff, having some good time. They're prophesying. Guess what? You're going to prophesy. And he, all these things happen. guess God must really be in this this must really be what God wants what an assurance that you indeed are God's anointed prince over his people and you can trust what God's word says I don't know if you've ever seen on tv or something I've never been to one of these people but you know they're like uh, uh, fortune tellers and they got a big group of people and they say I, I, I know there's, there's someone in the crowd and they've suffered tremendous loss. There's someone else in the crowd and they're dealing with some financial difficulties. I'm going, well, duh. I mean, you, you, you get a group more than two and you've got somebody who's dealing with loss or financial difficulties. And this guy is a fortune teller. Not Listen to what Saul was told by Samuel and all that happened to him. And this is no make-believe scam fortune teller. This is God's spirit working. Saul's status was, was special, all right? Yet, in reality, God's spirit anoints, empowers, equips, and is present in every believer's life. If you're here this morning and you are trusting in Jesus Christ and his death alone as the payment for your sin, a follower of Christ, guess what? You're anointed by God for his service. And you have been equipped and empowered by the Spirit of God to serve him. And so have I. 
This is uh, amazing encouragement to me. All right? And so Saul's divinely empowered transformation is actually witnessed in verses 10 and 11. We see kind of playing out this, you're going to prophesy and, and be changed, okay? And the onlookers, they watch this, this, this regular fellow become a, righteous, a religious fanatic, you know? The ordinary dude becomes an auditor. This common guy becomes a communicator for God, and they're scratching their heads. And I like the way the text says that it came about when all who knew him previously. Think about where you grew up. All the who knew you previously. And then you come back and all of a sudden you're prophesying or you're doing you People are going to go, don't know what happened. And this is how they respond to him. You know, Their questions convey, I think, unbelief. Now commentators are varying on it. Some people think, well, they're, they're really affirming him in his prophetic. And that may be true, but it seems to me that the interrogative, the question in the Old Testament oftentimes conveys skepticism. And I think it does here. What has happened to the son of Kish? What is going on with this guy? Is Saul also among the prophets? And those who knew him doubted the authenticity of his religious experience. And though they were skeptical, they couldn't argue with or deny that whatever was happening was remarkable, even though it was unexplainable to them. They, they, just, they were just trying to put it all together. And so then you get to verse 12, and, and, and a man there answered, so there's a dude who's sitting there, and he answers their skepticism with another question. Well, who's their father? Now, I don't know exactly, but it seems to me that it makes sense that what he's really asking there is, is since when should heredity be a determiner of prophetic activity? In other words, he's kind of arguing in favor of Saul and the reality of what's going on. So it's like, why should any... I mean, look at these other dudes who are, who are prophesying. They're nothing special. They're not from any special lineage or heritage. They're just... God's, came, God's working in them. And God used them and is using them. See, I think that the text is telling us that, that God empowers ordinary people. Regardless of our heritage, regardless of our, our pedigree, that, that God, you know, does it. And he's not prohibited by who we are to do what he wants to do in and through us. It was a shoe salesman from Chicago who became one of the most vibrant preachers in all of America, D.L. Moody selling shoes you know he's a nobody it was a country boy from South Carolina who became one of the world's greatest evangelists Billy Graham it was a, small, it was a, it was a very timid kind of reserved boy from just north of Ankeny you don't know who he is but I do 
His name's Dave. And he's one of the best Bible teachers I know. But before he used to get up and speak, he would be physically sick in the back room before he got up to speak every time. He's, 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 he's humorous, he's engaging, and he's theologically accurate. God uses amazing people. Is anything too difficult for God? Now we know the answer, right? I mean, we've read Genesis. We read Genesis 18, 14. No, nothing's too difficult for God. Well, do you believe it? Do you believe it in your life that God can use you and equip you to do things you never thought possible that matter for the kingdom? Saul did prophesy. I mean, Samuel said you're going to prophesy, and he did prophesy. Proof that the Spirit of God had come upon him mightily, equipping him and preparing him to do what God had called him to do. God enables what he requires. So what does he require of you? I don't know. But whatever it is, he enables it so that you can do it, and I can do it. He enables what he requires. As a poor, uneducated boy that grew up in England. He was a cobbler. And by God's enabling grace, by the time he was 12, he taught himself Latin. He went on to teach himself Greek and Hebrew and French and Dutch. During his life, he learned dozens of languages and dialects. He translated the Bible into six different languages and portions of it into 29 other languages. He's known as the father of modern missions, and his name is William Carey. God assures us of his presence and his power. And then the last thing in this section is that God acts in secret sometimes. And this is kind of a, a, a rewind to last week. You know, God's working behind the scenes. We, we see in verses 14 through 16, now Saul's uncle said to him uh, and his servant, Where, where'd you go? I mean, he's a little out of, the, out of the know, you know, and he hadn't been down to the barbershop, so he didn't know what was going on with Saul and his servant. So where you been? And we were looking for the donkeys. You couldn't find him, so we went to Samuel. Oh, oh, that, oh, he's a man of God. What did Samuel say? I want to know what Samuel told you. Well, he said, we're going to find the donkeys. Which is the same thing the two guys previously had said, yeah, the donkeys are found. But he didn't tell him about the matter of the kingdom. He didn't tell him that Samuel called him aside and then anointed him with oil and said, you're the next prince. You're the, or you are the prince, the king of Israel. Um, why not? Maybe his uncle was the town gossip and he didn't want everybody to know. I don't know. But it, it could have been courtesy, right? It, it could have been that he was, uh, it could have been insecurity. could have been uncertainty. He's just not really sure if he knows what's really going on. There's a lot's happened in a short amount of time. You see, only Samuel and only Saul, at this point in time, only those two really knew what was going on. They're the only two that knew he was the king of Israel. And... Uh, I think sometimes God, well, God works that way a lot of times. We just don't know what's going on. 
He's working behind the scenes. His work and his plan, his, his ministry operation is clandestine. You know, We just aren't in on the know. And the, the reality is, the encouragement here is, I don't have to be. I don't have to know what God is doing in every... But I do know this, God is never, never, never just about one thing. You think you're going out to eat after this thing, and, and you're going to meet somebody or talk to somebody... Well, I met Bob over at uh, Palmer's, and we, we met like three or four different people we knew. I mean, it wasn't it was an out-of-the-way location. It wasn't no place we thought these people were going to be. And I'm thinking, this, God is never just about one thing. He's always working in many ways. And this is an encouragement to me. So that's the first part of the lessons that we learn from the, the fact that, that, that Saul was consecrated. And, and now, lessons we learn from his public coronation. And there's four major lessons that I, I think that we, we should at least grab a hold of. There may be others. I, I'm not saying this is the four things. And the four things I'm giving you, the, the major outline, I'm, I'm uh, modifying from Ralph Dale Davis. Uh, and that these, these are lessons, first of all, to help us uh, proclaim, uh, they, they grasp that, uh, major lessons to grasp, they, these lessons proclaim First of all, God's majesty. They prove his mercy. They prioritize his message. And they prepare us for ministry. Here's the first one. God's word is persistent. Okay, you're going to announce the next king of Israel. And you got everybody gathered together at Mizpah, which is a place that Samuel visited regularly. We saw that uh, back in, uh, in earlier chapters. He, that's one of the places that he went to. And so he's got everybody gathered there. And what does he do? Well, hey, let's have a few songs and, and worship the Lord and get people going. Maybe have some sacrifices and stuff like that. Nah. How about we just call them out on their sin? God unexpectedly, at least to me, recounted their transgression. Look with me, if you will, again at verse 18. And he said, this is, he gathered to, to the Lord. This is gathering to the Lord, which means they're coming to hear from God. First thing God says to them through Samuel is this. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Samuel says, I'm not saying this is God speaking to you. Verse 18, I brought you, I brought Israel up from Egypt and I delivered you from the hand of all the Egyptians and from the power of all the kingdom that were oppressing you. I did that. I did that. From Egypt to the wilderness wanderings, to the conquest of Canaan, through the entire period of the judges, who was their Savior? God. I am your Savior, God says. But you, verse 9, 19, but you. I have been it. I have been your, your Savior. God had proven himself faithful to preserve and protect them. He is their only Savior. But you, 
circle it, underline it, highlight it, but you, but you. This is a contrast. It punctuates their refusal to rely upon their compassionate and capable Savior who alone has delivered them throughout their history. From all, and then he repeats in verse 19, not accidentally, he repeats, from all of your oppressors, from all of your calamities, and from all of your distresses. But instead, you reject me, and you replace me with somebody else. Folks, we are no different than Israel. We live our lives, and He comes through, and He provides for us, He protects us, He cares for us, He shows His mercy, He shows His love, and what do we do? Oh, wow, maybe I need to go buy some silver. Maybe I need to uh, get, 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 get another pair of shoes. Uh, you know what? I need, to, uh, I need to compromise myself or else I will not be accepted by my peers. For a lesser king, for a vassal king, they substituted. God faithfully and forcefully proclaimed the truth of his benevolence and their betrayal. Now why does God continually proclaim his benevolence and their betrayal to expose their sin so they will repent. You see, God always is interested in repentance and restoration and our fellowship with him. He wants a relationship, and so he keeps working on it. God commands, and he demands. You understand that? He commands, in other words, he's deserving of it, and he demands our unswerving allegiance to him. And his word truthfully, tirelessly, and tactfully calls people everywhere to repentance, even if doing so is inconvenient. Can you imagine it? Hey, we're having a nice gathering. We're gonna, we don't know what this is about. Hey, what's happening here? He's gathering us all to Migdal to hear from the Lord. It must be something good. And it's ultimately going to be a celebration, but no, it's a big downer. Even when it's inconvenient. You know, it's inconvenient. It's inconvenient for us to speak the truth in love about issues of pride that manifests himself in our country and in our own hearts, in the lives of people. Uh, selfishness, jealousy, dishonesty, infanticide, uh, you know, the, the horrors of, of mutilating children in the name of gender uh, therapy. This stuff needs to be stated for what it is. In love and compassion, but here we have God. He's beating the drum. He's not backing down. He's saying, we must stop it. And then verse 19, it, it transitions. Now therefore, okay, God goes on his rant. <laughs> I, 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 but you. And then he says, okay, I'm going to give you what you asked for. I was thinking about this, you know, and I don't have a bunch of ways to tease it out, but isn't that like God? He gives us in His mercy what we ask for, even if what we ask for is in rebellion against Him. Because that's the kind of God we serve. He is patient 
gracious, compassionate, abounding in loving kindness. In spite of their wickedness, he gives them what they want. The second lesson here is that God's choice is evident. Each tribe then and each family is called forth. And I don't have to go into all this detail about a casting of lots. It's still kind of a boggling my mind, but it was a typical Old Testament practice that they would bring the tribe. Okay, what is it? Tribe of Judah, tribe of Benjamin, tribe of Simeon, tribe of... No, it's Judah. Okay, uh, Benjamin. So we get Benjamin in here. And then we bring him by, tri- by families. Which one went? Well, it must be the Metrite family. It must be son of Kish. must be Saul. Saul is identified he's the king he's the one that's identified as the king the selection by lot confirmed beyond doubt that it was God not Samuel who was picking this guy okay so this is God's choice and and made it clear Saul was taken verse 21 I'm kind of skipping over some stuff here Saul was taken but guess what okay it's Saul where is he Oops. Where's he at? We don't know. Oh, he's in the baggage. But we didn't know he's in the baggage. Who knew he was in the baggage? God knew he was in the baggage. You see, I don't know. Why was he hiding? The text doesn't say. But you notice he was silent when he was asked by his uncle. Now he's hiding. Is his hesitancy rooted in humility? Could be. Chapter 9 kind of indicates that maybe he was humble. I'm just from a lowly tribe in Benjamin and, you know, from the smallest one of the people. It could have been rooted in insecurity. It could have been just rooted in fear, faithless fear. I mean, I remember uh, one of the times when I was uh, dumped out on the street to do, in a strange city, to do cold call evangelism. It's like, I wanted to go hide. I wanted to crawl in a hole somewhere. I was like, what am I going to do? You know, out of fear and faithless, insecurity, don't know what I'm going to say. So I get it, but here he is. Uh, and the irony of it shouldn't be lost. Ironic and intentional that the lost king, and what's his name? Saul, which comes from the same Hebrew root as the word inquire. So they, they, they inquired of the Lord. They asked the Lord for the one who was asked of the Lord. In other words, where is he? Which becomes kind of his identity. I mean, his name is kind of a picture of who he is. Where's he at? He's kind of like, where's Saul? And throughout his life, we kind of see that this kind of theme maybe plays out. Now, that's somebody's speculation. But the second irony, I think, is this. They relied upon their rejected king, God, to find their replacement king, Saul. Oh, so we still have to rely on God, even when we have this guy. Yep, that's kind of the point. God is still God. He's still the one we rely on. And then verse 24 I think uh, Samuel mockingly brings him up to speed uh, with, uh, he, he calls him out, they find him in the bags, they bring him forward, and then Samuel says, hey, look, guys, look at this dude. Because it tells you in the text that he's a, a foot taller than everybody else. He's a big, tall guy. He's the specimen. Here's the guy. Here's the king you wanted. 
hiding in the baggage, but he's taller than anybody. He's a physical specimen, and you're focused on the physical, and you ignore your own and his own inadequacies and frailties. What are, what are his frailties? Well, he's hiding. What are your frailties? You can't find him. So what kind of a king is he? A hiding king we can't find. Okay, good luck with that. And then they glibly and gullibly say, oh, long live the king. Indifferent to their own rebellion. And so God's choice is evident for them. Third lesson is that God commands, God's command is, is predominant. In verse 25, Samuel told the people, uh, the ordinances uh, of the king. And then he compiled them in a book and presented them to the Lord. Samuel's emphasis here is, he, he, I, I think ESV actually translates uh, verse 25 really well. It says, the rights and duties. Okay, he, he listed the rights and duties. So that's what's going on here. The rights and duties of kingship. He compiled the list of regulations that were to govern the king's conduct. Okay. And I think it must have closely resembled what's written in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Either re resembled it or, or reiterated or added to it. In Deuteronomy chapter 17 verses 14 through 20. You see, he placed it before the Lord. This was a, a reminder, I think, to Saul that Israel's king and to the people that Israel's king is an under-shepherd king. He's still subject to God. And God's commands. And God's word. He still must follow God's word. And a, a submissive king, a king submissive to God's word, will, 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 will be benevolent and never become a tyrant. Right? I mean, this is, this is what's laid out for us in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Is he's, he's benevolent. He's never a tyrant. By extension, uh, and I don't think it's a stretch, every, of, every one of us who's a believer is in submission to God's word. Because if we're in submission to God's word, then God's word really is, uh, we, we're obedient to God's word, um, and our obedience to God word, God's word, is, it's not a path to freedom in Christ. In other words, you can read the word of God and never become a, a believer. You can obey some of God's commands and not be a true follower of Jesus. So obedience to the word is not a path to freedom in Christ, but proof that we are free in Christ. Jesus said in John 14, 21, he who has my commandments and keeps him, he it is that loves me. And he that loves me will be loved of my Father, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. If we obey his commandments, we show that we love him. So it's not the path to a relationship, it's proof of the relationship. And, and, and when we're following God's word, it, it, it's freeing because it keeps us from being enslaved to other masters. Oh, I should go this way or that way. Well, I go this way. It's God. I'm, I'm a slave of God. Not of some other thing. When I put the, the flooring in in our basement, I had this instruction manual. Now, I don't like reading instruction manuals. Most guys don't. Uh, uh, and a lot of women don't either. Uh, so I, but I did. And I followed the instructions. They guided me. And uh, I, I, I was felt confined to them, you know, like, okay, well, I'd never done it before. So I'm reading the instruction manuals, laying it out, doing this stuff, cutting. And you know what it did? It, it was freeing. How did it free me? It, it, it freed me up 
because it, it freed me from wasting time doing it the wrong way. <laughs> it freed me from uh, making mistakes that I would be frustrated that I had to redo it. It freed me from wasting materials or so I, I didn't have extra or I didn't have short. It, it was freeing. In the same way, obedience to God's Word is liberating. It liberates us to live in light of God's Word. And it, lives, it liberates us to, to do what God wants. It, it keeps us from being slaves of another God. The last lesson here is that God's servant brings disagreement. Amazingly enough, there's two groups of people here that respond differently to the Lord's anointed. In, in verse 26, the valiant were with him. Those whose hearts God had worked in. Okay, The, the valiant people, they're with him. We're, we're excited. We follow him. We're going to support him. They, they accepted God's anointing and followed obediently. They were willing to follow him. Then the, the vile were against him, and they manifested it. They, it says in the text that they didn't follow him, they despised him, and they didn't bring presents to him. So they visibly and vocally rejected him. They rejected the Lord's anointing. And then it says he was silent. We don't know whether that was faith or fear, <laughs> again, but he's silent. The point is this. I think one of the points, I guess, to me, the main point is that Saul's reign begins with conflict, not celebration. And Saul's life kind of mirrors that as king. Conflict, not celebration. The people and their response to Saul, I think, parallels the response of people not to Saul, the Lord's anointed, but to the true king, the Lord's anointed, the Messiah. There are those in whom God's spirit works that support him, all right? That he is the true king, the Lord of Israel. He was Jesus, the king, the true Messiah, the true anointed one. He was embraced and is embraced by those whose hearts God touches. He was and he is rejected by those who live in rebellion. I ask you, which group are you in? Are you one who has received him as the Lord's anointed Messiah? Because God's worked in your heart and drawn you to himself. You've realized your sin separates you from him. You deserve condemnation. But Christ died on the cross and paid the debt that you owe. And you by faith have trusted and accepted his death and that alone is the payment for your sin. And you're following him. Or are you one who rejects him? And my admonition is, if you're in the latter group and you reject him, don't delay. Turn from your sin, repent and trust Christ and become one of his children today. You can then receive forgiveness and eternal life. Paul said in Acts chapter 4 verse 12, Neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There's no other way. Jesus is the only way. And as we, as we close and take a piece of bread and take some juice that represent his body broken and his blood shed, we remember that his death alone made possible for those of us in whom God's Spirit has worked and drew us to himself, provided for us salvation. 
the forgiveness of our sins and redemption. And for those who have never trusted him, this is the, the picture. A body broken, blood shed. And why blood? I forgot to say this in the first service this morning. Why is there the shedding of blood? Because in the Old Testament, the life is in the blood. And so when there is a sacrifice of blood, it is life for life. One life is lost so that the other life might be rescued. In the Old Testament, when they sacrificed an animal, they put their hand on the head of the animal and then slit its throat. Transfer. My sin to them. I live, they die. That's what Jesus did. And so we remember that. With sobriety, soberness, confessing our sin before we partake, but with celebration in the fact that we're his children. And so as you, uh, as the praise team sings, I pray and ask that you would search your heart, get your heart right with God, and then as God leads you, come and partake either in the back or in the front. Lord Jesus, thank you for this les- these lessons from the apostle uh, Saul's namesake, <laughs> Saul, the king of Israel. We pray and thank you for your spirit's work in him. And yet, we see that he failed. And we're prone to fail too. We thank you, Father, for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus, so that we might be brought into the kingdom of God, those of us who fail you, who have been forgiven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. For God's love.